Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. My name is Alec Calderwood, and all my friends call me Ozo, so Alec Ozo Calderwood. Um, and I, I was a former UDA UFF man and grew up in the Lower Shangle in Belfast. So I was born in a wee place called Brown Square at the bottom of Shangle Road um, in 1962. So obviously 1969, seen the start of the Troubles. I lived in number 32 Sackville Street which was directly facing a wee street called Coaches Street. So that would have been the street where the Catholics run about and Sackville Street was where the Protestants run about. When the trouble started, what happened was when the army and that came in, that they put a barbed wire fence up, which separated the two communities. And there was a big gable wall just right at the two streets. And there used to be, there was two soldiers posted on the top of this wall. So in 69, when the trouble started, Night after night, it was either gun battles and there was fighting, there was riding. And as a child, what happened was at maybe one, two o'clock in the morning, the, the adults from the area would have had to come and get the kids. We were all rushed out of our house. We were taken around into a wee court called Bilton Court. And there was probably about 20 to 25 kids were all put into one bedroom. And the adults used to wet blankets and put them up over the doors and the windows of the houses to keep out the CS gas that the army had been firing. So obviously as like a six, seven year old, it was, it was very frightening. Like, cause you were getting, when we were getting roasted out of our houses at that time of the morning, there was ratting going on, there was petrol bombs flying and there was all sorts of things happening. It was very, very frightening. And then to get put into one of these houses, you were locked in a bedroom. You had these blankets over the doors and over the windows. Nobody really knew what was going to happen. You, you just didn't know. All you really were listening to the commotion that was going on outside. So it was very frightening growing up as a child in those circumstances. And did you have Catholic friends when you were a child? Well, yes, I do remember. Actually, I remember a wee woman called Aggie Conley. And how I always remember her was she used to wear like a big raincoat. And she'd have been wearing a pair of water boots, but she got a big stick and whatever way she'd done it, she put a water boot on the end of the stick and put it up her raincoat. So when we seen her coming down the street as children, like as kids, we thought, there's Aggie with the three legs. 
so it was very very funny but that's that's one of the things that i always remember but and i do remember because we always played football and cribby and there was different all the wee games that you played when you were a kid but all this here suddenly took a stop when when the troubles had started because it was more about trying to well for the adults anyway um protecting the community and there was always soldiers there was police there was always riding going on and so that sort of was knocked in the head but i do remember and i have fond memories of a lot of things that happened took place before the troubles had started like when did the hit set in also was it when you were a child maybe it wasn't even hate maybe it was fear of catholics well at the beginning i, I didn't i don't think i had hate or fear i was i was, certainly had fear growing up as a child because of all the situation that was going on but i think for myself when when i was about nine years of age ten years of age i used to run about it was it used to be an old police station called brown square barracks and I always remember the regiment, the Royal Highland Fusiliers, they had moved in the Brown Square Barracks. And I became what was known as their mascot. And what that entailed was that I used to go to the shop and get them their cigarettes and their chocolate, lemonade and stuff like that. And I also had permission to be in the barracks. So I was able to go into the kitchen where I had made them, the soldiers who were on the sanger outside, I had made them tea and made them toast. And... I, up on the first floor of the building was where all the soldiers slept. It was like a big massive room with all the beds down each side. And there was a fire at the end of the room. And I had a wee bed in front of the fire. And I always remember as a kid, because I had my own wee uniform and all. And it was, it was great playing the soldier, if you understand me. And I remember when it was, I think it was nine or ten. And there used to be a Woolworths in uh, North Street. And the soldiers had took me down and they bought me a wee toy SLR. And we went back to the barracks and one of the soldiers was messing about with my wee gun and he broke it. And didn't I start crying? So they, they drove me down and they bought me another one. So I think from a, from a young age, I had a close affiliation with the army and with the soldiers and stuff like that. And in 1971, then there was three Scottish soldiers who were murdered and their bodies were found up at Laganil. And I remember at the time, because I had permission from my parents and I actually travelled over to Scotland when the three Scottish soldiers were being buried. Now, I didn't get to the funeral, obviously, but I actually went to Scotland with the soldier who played the bugle at the funeral. But he left me with his mother while he went and played the bugle at the funeral. So uh, when I came home again, this had a, like a, a profound effect on me. And I, I began asking questions when I was 10, 11, 12 years of age. And all I wanted to know was who killed the three Scottish soldiers. But when I asked the question, I was told it was the IRA. I says, but who is the IRA? Well, my community told me the IRA was the Fenians or the Tags or the Roman Catholics. So from that age then, that's when I started hating Catholics. And how did that hate grow then also? Was it... Uh did you attack Catholics? Did you verbally abuse them? I mean, they were in your eyes the enemy. So, you know, as as a teenager then growing up, how did that... Well, growing up, I, in 1971, we, we actually moved from Brown Square and we moved into what was called the Shankill Estate. Denmark Street was the first houses opened and, and that was in 1971. 
Now, for us, that was a big, big thing because we were suddenly moving from a house where we had an outside toilet, where it was a very, very small house, and we moved into Denmark Street. We were getting like a three-bedroom house with a front garden and a back garden and a bathroom. Because I do remember the days in Melbourne Street where you actually went and would have paid, I, don't, I can't remember how much it was, like it would have been sixpence, but it was very cheap. You actually paid to get a bath with warm water because I was always used to getting moist in a tin bath in front of the fire. <clears throat> and I, I remember that in one of the wee small bedrooms that we had in Brown Square, there was one double bed, and in that double bed was me my two brothers and my oldest sister and my big brother keeps reminding me that one year I went to the bonfire and there was like a, a box which actually looked like a coffin and I trailed it in the house up the stairs into the bedroom and I used to sleep in that box and put the, the lid over the top of it and that, that was my wee bed so I called that my wee coffin so in them days there wasn't very much room because I had th like three other sisters and they had to go and live with my granny because there was no room in the house that, that we had at that time. But then when we went to Denmark Street, um, when we moved to Denmark Street, yes, my hatred for Catholics started to deepen. And in Denmark Street, we, we had a wee place called the Muck Hills, which was at the back end. And between the Muck Hills and Unity Flats, which was the Catholic era, there used to be a, a big waste ground. So when, when I was probably 12, 13, 14 years of age, I was very, very much involved in getting involved in ratting with the people from Unity Flats. And that just meant going over and smashing their windows. Then obviously they would have come out, they would have fought on the waste ground, and they would have come over and smashed our windows. And on many occasions, as a young man, when all this ratting was going on, then it sort of started to escalate to be a wee bit more dangerous because the bigger men would have then come out when the Radden had got the peak and they would have been shooting at each other across this waste ground. But I suppose as a young boy growing up, it was exciting. I know it was frightening also, but it was it was an exciting thing to do. And I think that the way that the, the government or the, whatever, the way they dealt with this here was, I think they decided to put a motorway right through the middle of the waste ground and that's when we got our, the West Link motorway. So that sort of stopped the two communities then from fighting with each other. So also you talked about the army and your respect for them. Did you want to join the army at any stage? I did. I always wanted to join the army and I can actually remember when I was 16 years of age that I went down in the Royal Avenue and I went to the army recruitment office, me and a friend of mine. And when we went in to join the Irish Rangers, um, and when I went in, the thing that stopped me from getting in was that I couldn't read and write. And my friend got in and I didn't. So there was only one other option for me that I felt. And growing up in my community, I've always wanted to be, I wanted to be sort of, when you join the paramilitaries as a young person, it gives you a sense of belonging. It gives you a sense of being a part of a bigger family. And so I wanted that for me. And I, and I looked at my community. I looked at the people that lived within my community. And in the area where I lived, most of the people were joining the Ulster Defence Association, the EDA or the UFF. Um, and 
I wanted to join the UDA. Now, I can remember back when I joined the UDA when I was 16 because I didn't get into the army. And in them days, they give you a wee blue jacket with a wee fur collar on it. So that sort of gives you your sense of identity. <clears throat> now, if I can take it back, I remember going on a cross-community holiday when I was 14. And it was like 10 Protestants, 10 Catholics. It took us over to Holland. And I can remember when we arrived at the airport that I was actually fighting with one of the wee Catholic guys in the airport. And I stuck a head in him and he fell down the stairs in the airport. That was the start of the holiday. We got over to Holland. And wonder of wonders, it worked out that they were going to put me into the house with the person who had just stuck the head in. So again, I waited till about 2 o'clock in the morning and attacked that young Catholic guy with a big wooden clog. So the leaders felt that they had to do something, so they isolated me from the rest of the group. And they put me into the house with all the leaders. And that went on for about a week. They had isolated me from the group of all the other young people, kept me with the leaders. And then on the second week, it was the same again. that They wouldn't let me back with the group. And then the youth leader at that time made a decision. And unfortunately, they sent me into a mental hospital for two weeks, where I was put in a mental hospital in Holland, where nobody could speak English. They strapped me under the bed, filled me full of injections. I was in that state for three days. And then they actually let me out of the bed into the ward with the rest of the patients, for want of a better term. And I can remember, because it was sort of like a, your first experience of a prison or something, because there was metal grills, and you had to open them with a key to get from one room to the next room. There was a TV room, but you had to go through a, a, a metal grill to get in to watch this TV. But again, the difficulty for me was that everything was in Dutch. So there was no English on the TV. There was no, and none of the people in the place could speak English. So that was a traumatic experience that I had to go, go through for two weeks. And then when it was time to go home after the four week holiday, that brought me back on a separate plane that didn't even let me come back with a group. So that was just an experience of when I was a child. Like. And how sad is it that that trip was designed to bring you and other people from different backgrounds together and that's that's how it ended, you know? And Well, it was very, very sad. It was, it was obviously sad for me. And um, looking back on it now, you know, it's it was very hurtful. And I, I do believe that it really did affect me, but it was probably my fault because of the the way my mindset was at the time, that my hatred for Catholics and my hatred for the people from the other community. And for that, obviously, that's what I've had to live with all my life, you know. You must have been open, though, to trying to get on with Catholics or you wouldn't have agreed to go on a trip like that. Or was there other other reasons why you went on the trip? I, no, I, I did think I went on the reasons because obviously, certainly I will try and get on with people, and that's that's just the way that it was, and and it was difficult. Although in my heart, if I'm truthful, I hated Catholics, and it, and I didn't really want anything to do with them. But when you were stuck in a in a shangle state with nothing to do, then obviously there, there was the excitement of trying to go away somewhere and. And at least make an attempt at it anyway, you know, and get you out of your, your area for a wee bit, you know. So when you came home from this trip uh, in Holland and your parents were told what had happened, I mean, starting with the attack on 
the, the Catholic uh, teenager and then to the you being, I mean, uh, basically signed into uh, somewhere that deals with mental health, sectioned, basically. What did your parents say? Well, obviously, my mum and dad were disgusted, but it was sort of probably just a part of my life at that particular time, because I was 14 when that happened. I actually got put out of school when I was 11 and a half, and I, I was in class, and one of the fellas in the class threw a bit of wood at the teacher, and when the teacher turned around, I was laughing, but I was only laughing because of my nerves. But the teacher then blamed me, so he came down and he hit me a big slap in the head. And unfortunately, I lifted a chair and hit him over the head with a chair. So that led to a whole ruckus, and I finished up. I can remember going over and climbing out the window, and we were on the like second floor of the school. And I said to the teacher, if you come near me, I'm going to jump. And he pleaded with me to come back in, and they got me back in the window. He took me down into the headmaster's office. All the headmaster wanted to do was for me to put my hand out to be caned. And in them days, caning was a terrible thing, mate. And I refused. I says, I'm not putting my hand out to get caned because he hit me first. And he says, you'll put your hand out. And I says, no, I won't. So he just put his arm around my neck and started beating me about the backside with the cane. So I threw his desk up in the air in the office. And he just screamed at me to get out and don't come back. So I was 11 and a half years of age. And that was basically the end of my formal education until I was 15. They never came near me from 11 and a half till I was 15. So obviously in my own life that led for me, I started going into a pub in the Shango when I was 12 years of age, the Diamond Jubilee. And I started working in the Diamond when I was 12. And I'd obviously started with lifting glasses and bottles and washing glasses and bottles and then obviously working behind the bar. And during those times, you know, the bar would have been filled with paramilitaries and different things and I, I always run about and everybody knew who Ozo was because I was like only, I was a kid and obviously with all the men running in and out. And I suppose in a sense that that was probably the start for me of getting involved with the paramilitaries without actually joining the paramilitaries because you would have had the older men and they would have said to the Ozo, come here, will you take that here and will you take that there? So without even realising it, I'd suddenly become involved. So I'd have just brought my school bag with me when I went down to work in the diamond because I knew somebody was going to say, here, take this here and take that there. So I'd have just threw it into the school bag and away I went and took it to wherever they wanted it to go. So in that sense, I suppose I grew up with the paramilitaries in a sense. So when did that become official? So you said 16 that you joined the UDA. Yeah. Was that a joint thing with the UFF or was that just an automatic thing where you were sworn into the UDA but you were also a member of the UFF or was that something that came later? No, well, I was sworn obviously till the UDA and I, I joined a certain squad um, and I think I was in the squad that I joined initially. I was in it for a week and then I got threw out and they, t they told me to get back down the hill, the bottom of the shangle. They put me in a squad with all the all younger ones because obviously the ones that I'd gotten involved with at the beginning were all older than me. But in a sense now I can look back and I realise why they threw me out and it was, I suppose it was a family member trying to protect me. So it didn't want me involved with a certain, certain ones. So he says, look, get him out of there and get him down the road and put him with people who know his own age sort of thing. 
And did that make you more determined to join the paramilitaries then? Well, it was, I, I was in the paramilitaries when I was 16. I, I was sort of fully active and operating with the people who were in the Ulster Defence Association at that time. Obviously, I can't speak about operations, but I think it's it's important for me to say that, you know, not every Lord of Paramilitary was a, like a sectarian killer because all organisations had their operations and they were sort of well planned out and it wasn't just so-called innocent targets. There was people there that, obviously, when I joined the Paramilitaries, I wanted to go and kill IRA men. I make no bones about that. That's the reality and that's the truth. But the difficulty for me at that particular time that I wasn't educated and I didn't know who was an IRA man and who was a Catholic and what was the difference. It was all because of what I'd been taught and what I had grew up with was that all Catholics were in the IRA. So there was no distinction there? There was no distinction in the early stages. But the one thing that I did know that when they were planning their operations, they weren't just going out and shooting the first person you get their hands on. They were proper military operations. I mean, for a 16-year-old to be sat in a room with, I assume, masked men and being sworn into the UDA, was that not a daunting, frightening, overwhelming experience? Maybe for a lot of people it would have been, but because I grew up with these people and because it was, I suppose in a sense, it's something that I wanted. I have to be careful what I say because... I really, really did want to get in. I really, really did want to join the army. And I, and I wanted to go. That was the life that I wanted. And, and then sometimes it makes me angry and it hurts me when, when I look back because the friend who I went to join the army with went into the army and had a good career. And all I can say is, well, it could have been me. But unfortunately, the life that I, I was in and, and where I was living and what was going on, it just never happened for me. So as an official member of the UDA, you were now officially doing jobs for the UDA. What did that involve? Well, obviously, I can't speak about operations, but what I can say, it, it would have involved anything that meant protecting my community. Now, there, was, you, there could be operations from maybe stealing a motorbike or stealing a car or going and robbing somewhere because they needed funds, or going out and killing people, or whatever it was. It was a whole wide range. It's whatever they felt that you were capable of, then that's what you would have been chose to pick to, to do, you know? You went in there knowing that there was a possibility that you could take someone's life? I was, I was well aware that that's what I went in there for, and that's what I wanted to do. But for me... Although my mind and was mixed up in a sense about what what was my role, I joined the paramilitaries because I wanted to protect my community. I I believed and I was told at that particular time, well, the IRA are coming into my community. They're killing my people. They're killing the police. They're killing British security forces. I was British and I was proud to be British and I just wanted to defend that Britishness. And if that meant going to the other community and killing these people, that's what I joined up for. I'm really sorry to say that, but that's that was the life that I had then. Who do you think influenced you during those years? Was it more senior men who would have been in paramilitaries? 
because I'm sure your family wouldn't have wanted you to join the UDA. Well, my father was an old hunting man and had Catholic friends, but he used to go out hunting rabbits and hares, and he was an old fisherman and stuff like that. Was never involved in the paramilitaries, worked in the shipyard, and was what we would call a good man, if you know what I mean. Um, it was, it's really, really hard. What, what was what was the main well, question again? Just who, during those years when you were out out of school, yes. who, who influenced you? And um, it had to be more senior. Well, unfortunately men. for me, the people who influenced my life, in a sense, would have been all like leading paramilitaries, because, in a sense, I suppose I got to know loads of different people who would have been different ranks and different categories. I think it's a sad thing about some loyalist paramilitaries because everybody always wants to be the commander but nobody wants to be the foot soldier. For me, I was a foot soldier. I was just a, a volunteer and I would have done what I was asked to do. But I did look up to some of the men who I felt that were very strong in protecting their community. And obviously these people would have had an influence on me. And then some of them would have had an influence for good and some of them would have had an influence for bad. Because there's, I would say there's bad people on, on both sides. But there was people there who I certainly were a good influence on me, which that I believed. And I suppose it was up until my way of thinking when I sort of educated myself, then obviously I started to think differently. The only, suppose when I look back on it, the only positive person that would have had an influence in my life, truthfully, would have been Jack McKee, who actually happened to be my cousin. But he was, he was the only Christian I knew at that particular time. And I always knew that he was different than everyone else. Uh, and I always I always really looked up to Jackie. And, and Jack is a pastor now in Belfast, former military. Yes, he was in the UDR and then he, he became a pastor. And he pastors his own church now today. Um, and as I say, I suppose he has his faults like everybody else, but... At least for all those years, he continued to do the positive thing within the community rather than the negative. I suppose that's the way to look at it. So within, I mean, the guts of a year, you had taken someone's life and it was a, a Catholic who yeah. had been brought to the Shankill. Do you want to tell me also... The story around that. Well, what what happened was that the story that I know there was two Catholics and they get into a taxi in North Street and they were looking to go to Ardoin. So obviously the taxi that they get into was going to go through the Protestant area. Um, I was wasn't aware of any of this because I was with my friends. I'd been out having a wee drink with my girlfriend and a couple of our fellas and our girls. I was on my way home when I, I walked up Berlin Street. And there was a group of men that had two Roman Catholics up against a wall. One of the men said to me, Ozo, he called me over and he says, Ozo, have you got a gun? I says, no, but I can get one. And as he said that, one of the Catholic fellas ran away. Well, I said to the old man that was there, go use and get him and I'll look after this one. So they went after the fella that ran away. I took the other fella and I took him away set myself up as judge, jury and executioner, and I took that young man's life. That young man's name was Alexander Reid, and he was brutally beaten to death. 
beaten with a breeze block. And I mean, we've had lots of brittle deaths during the troubles. But for a 16, 17 year old to carry it out, I think it's really, really shocking. I suppose what I had in my head was that I knew that if I had been in the Catholic area, that I believed with all my heart that the same thing would have happened to me. Now, I'm not trying to justify what I've done because I, I'm, I'm actually sick to my own stomach in a sense for what happened. But I understand why it happened at the time because it was my way of thinking, but it was my way of thinking that was wrong. I believe stories that people told me. So therefore, at that particular time, it would have justified what I had done. But I don't think you can justify what I, I have done because, as you say, it is shocking and it's terrible. And I do regret it. But unfortunately, that was the circumstances at the time. And I, I think it, the only thing that keeps me sane is that if I had went into their area, I believe they would have done the same thing to me. How long after you carried out the murder of Alexander Reid were you arrested? It was probably after a year or so. I think it would happen first of all. I think um, in 1980, I think it was that I went to Hidebank Young Offender Centre where I was sentenced to a year. And while I was in Hidebank Young Offender Centre, about three or four of my friends were arrested for the murder of Alexander Reid. I think there was three of them were charged with, one of them was charged with the murder and three of them was charged with sort of actual bodily harm or something, charges like that. But what I knew was, lying in Hidebank, was that none of the four people that were charged were had anything to do with the murder. They were all my friends, but none of them had anything to do with the murder. And I've actually finished up, but one of them got life and the other three got five years each. So then for that, the rest of that year that I was in Hidebank and then when I got out of prison, not only did I have that on my mind, because my, so four of my friends were in prison for something they didn't do, because it was me who done it. And I think they told the police that I had done it. But at the end of the day, at that particular time, I hadn't made a statement. When I finished up making a statement for the murder and finished up in prison, I told the court and I pleaded guilty. But when I pleaded guilty, I pleaded guilty under the auspices that I was the only person present when Alexander Reed was murdered. None of my friends had anything to do with it. One of my friends who got life for the murder, when I was found guilty, the judge directed that the court give him a retrial. So he got his re he didn't go for his retrial because he, he refused a retrial and the police actually took him out of the prison. But he had turned super grass and then a couple of months later he retracted his evidence. So he actually finished up doing longer for the murder that I committed for nothing. And in many senses, when you talk about your mind and you talk about confusion and how things affect you, I had to sit in a cell with him every weekend when we sat and maybe watched the racing on TV or watched the football on TV. And he kept on saying to me, oh, so who was with you when you done that murder? Or what happened and all? And I says, look, listen, I don't want to talk about it. But the sad thing for me was that there he's sitting there. He was my friend. 
And he was sitting doing life for something that he didn't do. But the police weren't worried about that. Nobody was worried about that. And he actually served longer than what I served. For, and I was the one that actually done it. So when you talk about confusion in your mind, it, it was confusing to the highest degree. Like When you were in court and you were handed that life sentence, can you remember what was going through your head? Not really. The only thing that I can remember is it was probably, you know, well, this is it. I did. I believed. I believed within myself that I was never, ever going to get out of prison again. I believed I was going to die in prison. Don't know why, but that's just, well, you just, that was, that was your lot, and that's you at that particular time. Just, well, that's it. You're, you're done for now. And it was very confusing for me because when I get sentenced, I get sentenced till the Secretary of State's pleasure. So that meant that they had to keep me in the criminal road prison for a month before they took me down to the maze prison. Because apparently, legally, the Secretary of State or something has to sign a form to get you transferred down there. So at that particular time, for the first two weeks then, they locked me up 23 hours a day in what was called B-Wing. So it was like the punishment cells. And when I went for my visit with my mother, I told my mother, I says, because I didn't know, I was, I was confused. I, I, I was saying to myself, is this, is this what they're going to do to me for the rest of my life? That you're locked up 23 hours a day? You don't, you know, you weren't getting out for any exercise to watch TV or, you know, get your meals in the dining hall or whatever. They just brought the meals to the cell. So my mother and a wee local councillor from the area went and they demanded to see the governor and had a word with the governor. And then they said to the governor, look, this wee lad's only sentence, he's confused, he doesn't know what's going on, why are you keeping him in the punishment cells? And then, so the governor agreed with my mother and the councillor, and it says, right, we'll move him into D-Wing with the rest of the sentence prisoners, and at least he'll get out and get his meals in the dining hall and get speaking to our people. So then that happened, and then they transferred me down to the maze prison and put me into the young prisoners' heart. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. 
Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. At any point, Ozo, did you think about Alexander Reid or think about his family? To be truthful, no, because I tried to blank it out of my mind because I didn't want to think about those sort of things. Um, what I can say is when I came out of prison away in 1993, year, years later, that I got involved in cross-community work and I was working with a girl in a, an organisation called Intercom on the Andam Road. And I used to go around schools, both Protestant schools and Catholic schools, and talked about my story and talked about my involvement in the paramilitaries and how, well, obviously about how Christ had changed my life and that there was a better way. And I worked with one of Alexander Reed's relatives when I was doing that, when we went and shared our story with the kids in the school so that at least they could get that perspective and help them in any decision-making that they were going to make for the future. How was it meeting a relative of the man whose life you had taken? Well, I hadn't planned for to do that there. It was just that I took this job and it happened to be that that girl was working there at that time. And when when I got to speaking to her and we got talking, we sat down, had a cup of coffee, and then she explained to me who she was. And then I obviously had to explain to her who I was. And then the two of us became very, very good friends. And then we had a good working relationship to go and try and help other young people. When did you come to the realisation that what you did was wrong? Did that take many years? Was it straight away? No, I think it took, I think it did take a couple of years. Um, my sort of, when I went down, down to the maze prison in 1982, then it would have been five years later before I started to, you know, really think about me and what was really going on because Although I was young, I couldn't really properly read and write until I was 25 years of age. And I approached the governor in the jail and I said to the governor, like, can you get me a remedial teacher? I want to learn to read and write. And they did get me a remedial teacher. And I started that process of learning to read and write. In the early years, sort of from 1985 to 1987, when I was in the process of learning to read and write, I started doing actually Bible studies through a wee group called Outreach to Prisoners. It was a, a minister, Jack, Jackie MacArthur. And during that process of reading and writing and studying and stuff like that there, I think everything came to head for me on the 3rd of June, 1987. And I was sitting in my cell at 11 o'clock at night. And I sat and I thought about my whole life, my all the, everything that had been through up until that point. And I said to myself, surely there must be an easier way than this. And in a sense, with doing the Bible studies and reading about this person called Christ and reading about how he, made it, how he can make a difference in your life by putting your faith and your trust in him. So I got out of my bed, I got on my knees and I asked Christ into my life. And I can remember that night, there was no flashing lights or no angels or anything like that, but 
I cried my eyes out and then I realised for the first time in my life that there was someone who had died for me for all the wrongs that I had done that he had taken upon himself. So I suppose that gave me a bit of hope for the future. And then that was that moment in time on the 3rd of June 1987, that was the thing that was going to change my life forever. Now, I'm not going to say that my life became easy after that, because it actually became a lot harder. But the one thing I know that happened that night is that my life had changed. And as I say, I knew that I was a different person when I got out of my bed the next morning. And that brought with it a lot of challenges because for years I had fought in the prisons for segregation. For years I'd fought to be separated from Republicans. And then all of a sudden you're thinking like, you know, well, if God forgives you, you've got to forgive them. And what that meant to me was that well, then I couldn't fight for segregation. I didn't. I couldn't fight to be on my own from anyone. What my job was going to be was to love everyone. And and for the first time ever in my life, I came upon the thing for me personally. So I'm going to have to love these people who I've hated all my life. But that was a challenge that I was prepared to take on, and and I carried that challenge on when I came out of prison. Because all I wanted to do was work, do cross-community work and bring kids from both sides together. Because I didn't want anyone going through what I went through, no matter whether they were a Protestant or a Catholic. So how long did you spend in prison? Well, probably about 12 and a half years for the first time. And then I was in a year in high bank before that, so it been 13 and a half years sort of thing. It's a long time to be in prison. You say you got out in 1983. Yeah. I mean, you went in... 1980. 1980. A lot had changed, and you're coming out. Was it hard to adjust? There was a lot of aspects about coming out of of the prison and trying to adjust, because there was a lot of technology had changed, like mobile phones and all, all, all sorts of stuff. And the thing that you weren't used to was crowds and stuff like that there, so... It was dynamite when you were trying to go into the town, maybe shopping to get stuff. And there was big crowds and stuff like that. I just sort of, I suppose I wanted to be on my own because for a few years I'd been isolated and I was locked up in a cell on my own. You know what I mean? And, and for a lot of that time I was locked up for 23 three hours a day because we'd been on protests for 18 and a half months. Been, when I went to High Bank, my first six months was locked up 23 hours a day. You you were saying that when you were in prison, you didn't want to be segregated anymore. Did you have any contact with Republicans when you were in prison after finding God? Yes, what happened was <clears throat> I was in, obviously, the paramilitary wings at the time when I found God, or God found me, is it probably a better way to put it. And I made a conscious decision that I was going to have to love the people who I hated all my life. Now, that was never going to be easy. And one of the ways of doing that for me was that I actually approached the governor and I asked the governor to move me down into the mixed wings in the maze prison. And he says, well, what do you want to go there for? I says, I want to go because I want, my, I want to change my life. I want to move on with my life. So I'm prepared to mix with anybody. If I'm truthful, the governor was very, very sceptical. 
And I said to myself, Calderwood, what are you at? I says, I'm not at nothing. I just want to go and get on with my life. But it, it, he was very, very hesitant. But I suppose he had to move me down. You know what I mean? So I moved down into the mixed wings and just got on with my life, basically. And started to try and, I suppose, I wanted to try and educate myself and try and understand what was the purpose of all this. And was that process hard also because there's a lot of realisations that must have came your way? Number one, not all Catholics were IRA members. Uh, not everybody was out was, killing I, each I, other. Was, it and... was a terrible shock to me, to be honest with you, because see, when you have a way of justifying something and then you find out that that way of justifying is not true, it's like, you know, you're sort of, you've, you've fought a war on false pretenses because you've fought it on what other people have told you. And, and I think it, it can be a very, very sad shock to the system when you realise that everything that you fought for was not for the right reasons, if you understand me. I think, and I always think, what was it? Um, I'm thinking of the confusion that it caused me. I'm thinking of the hurt that it caused me. I'm thinking when when I look at society today and I listen to some politicians and they're saying exactly the same thing that people were saying 50 years ago. And to me, that's very, very sad that every issue seems to be getting made orange and green. And I think there's more to life than orange and green. And through my experience, in a sense that all I really want is I don't want kids going through what I'm going through, no matter whether they're a Protestant or a Catholic. What I think is that we have a responsibility, and this is like Republicans and Loyalists. If we, if we challenge ourselves and say, well, what legacy are we going to leave behind? So what are we going to leave behind for this generation? Now, I know what the generation left me, and it was nothing, only confusion. So I, I think I have a, an obligation, in a sense, to say, look, it's not all just about this. It's about who you are. You need to find out who you are. You need to find out who your own identity is. And then I think that that'll help you to be the person that you should be. And we can't forget, also, you were a child. Even when you committed that murder, you were a child still. And, I mean, it's sad. It's sad that a man lost his life. It's also sad that a child had carried that out. And the work that, that you, you started doing when you came out of prison was trying to work with young people across community and steer them away from that. Because in 1993, things weren't, I mean, they were, they were still bad. Here, I mean, yeah. when the Shankle bomb happened, Graysteel happened, people were still being shot, people were still being murdered. You had your work cut out in that. Suppose in a sense, the way that I think about it now too is that, you know, the whole conflict in Northern Ireland, realistically, has been about religion. And so my challenge would be is, well, you know, what is religion? And the way that I've worked at process that for myself is, Religion is man's search for God. Christianity is God's search for man. So in a sense that I think self-identity is the most important thing for any young person. But you see the society that we live in today, unfortunately the troubles do have a lot to answer for. 
And when I look at my generation, not, not me, but my parents' generation, I look at the Shankill Estate and I look at the Shankill and Glencairn and all the different places. The National Health Service have a lot to answer for because what they have done because of the troubles, they've created a generation who are addicted to prescription drugs. Now, I noticed when I came out of prison that all the doctors that used to be on the go in the Shankill Estate and all, all them doctors have all moved on now. Should they be made held responsible for what they've created? Because it was, it was all our parents who became addicted to prescription drugs. Then all their children have become addicted to prescription drugs. Intergenerational trauma. So surely somebody needs the answer for this. And how do we make sure that it doesn't happen to the next generation? It's, I mean, I just feel, my own personal opinion is Northern Ireland's been completely let down, the people who live here, because we have the highest suicide rate in Europe and it has to be connected to the troubles and, like I said, intergenerational trauma. And the fact of the matter probably was that back then there was no resources to deal with with mental health and and people were just handed out prescription drugs and that's sad i mean it's that's exactly my point that's yeah. what, that's what i'm really really trying to say but how can we change that for the next generation and i think i, I think in many ways that it, it has already changed you know and i know that because i've been through i know i've been through a lot in my life i've been through a lot when i'm young I've been through a lot now, and even the present day, but if we look at the present day, about me now, how, like, there, there's a lot of post-traumatic stress, there's a lot of things connected with the conflict that still affect me today, right? I've got more hang-ups on a Chinese laundry, you know, I make mistakes and, and that there, but all, all I want to do is I want to try and live my life right and be an example to not only adults in my community, but the young people as well. And I think that's all I can do. Now, I know I wouldn't even be here if it wasn't for God. Because when I look through my whole life, there's many, many occasions that I should have died. And there is no doubt whatsoever that I know that God has on upon my life. And he has me here and he has me here for a reason. So I just hope that I can fulfill that reason. Your journey hasn't been easy, Ozo, and, and you did your community work here and you left Northern Ireland after a period. Why was that? Well, actually, in 1996, I went over to Liverpool for the conference and I met a girl at the conference. And as I say, well, I've been out of prison three years at the time. I met a girl at the conference. She wrote a poem for me. I read the poem the next day and then we had got married six weeks later. And then a year later, we had a wee daughter. That was my daughter, Mary Ellen. Um, in the year 2000, I left here to go to England to start a new life. And then when that happened, then things started to go a bit wrong for me. And that was probably through choices that I made in my life. And over in England, there was different a different society, different, gen different people, different culture, different things. Um, I take full responsibility for my life. I take full responsibility for the things that happened in my life. And I obviously then had got divorced from my wife. I take full responsibility for that. And I think in the sense of it, if I look back on it now and I, and I realize that it was probably because of alcohol. Now, I would never call myself an alcoholic. I would never say that 
I, I like a wee, I would like a wee drink now and again, but from my life changed at the beginning. Then when I, I, I came out of prison, the first three years, never had it, never took a drink. You know what I mean? Then I goes to a different culture and I thought, I oh, well, it maybe all right to have a wee pint here, a wee pint there. But, but it wasn't for me. And, I, and I've learned from those mistakes. You understand me? And I know now, if I wanted to have a drink, I probably wouldn't have it now. Not because I don't want to have a drink. It's because I don't want to offend someone else. You mean fellow Christians? N not even fellow Christians. Other people, people in my community who would say, look, oh, big Ozo's a Christian, or he's in the pub having a pint. I would say, no. I could justify trying to have a pint because when Christ turned the water into wine, he didn't turn it into slurry, he turned it into wine. But see, if, if I, me going into a bar and having a pint of beer is going to offend someone because they're calling me a Christian, I think the most important thing about the Christian life is that it's not a set of do's and don'ts. You don't do this and you don't do that, or you do this and you do that. That's not what the Christian life's about. It's about a relationship with a person, and that person's the Lord Jesus Christ. And as long as I don't defend him, then I know I'll be all right. But if me going into a bar and having a pint of beer was offensive to someone, then I won't do it, because I don't want to be an offensive person. So from this moment on, in a sense, for in my life, I will try to live my life to not offend anyone. And if it means not going to a bar or not going to the bookies or not going anywhere, then I won't do that if it's going to offend someone. Because my responsibility is to try and be a witness to the to them people, especially the people within my own community. Because we live in a terrible society today. And we live in, in my community all over the shackle, whether we like it or not, drugs is destroying young people's lives. And all I can say is that for me, the answer was Christ. And if those people are looking away out, then their answer is going to be Christ as well. Turn to him and he will look after them. The conference that you were involved in in Liverpool where you met your wife, you were over there to share your story about going into paramilitaries and then spending time in jail and then coming out and, and trying to turn your life around. And... Your wife listened to you, and the next day she had written a poem. Can you remember what that poem was? Yes, because uh, as I say, well, I'd spoke for two and a half minutes at the conference, and I think that she was able to sum up my life far, far better than I could. And, and she'd never met you and before. And she'd never met me before in her life. Yeah. And here's what she wrote. She wrote, Today I met a man who spoke the truth, who spoke of the fragmentation of his youth, of a land of conflict and judgment misplaced, Preconceived ideas destroying a race. But he held high his head and he talked of the day that through the confusion he took life away. It wasn't a sentimental tale and pity had no place. It was a humbling story of a God full of grace. A simple reminder that sin has no size, of the equality we share if we look through God's eyes. We are each of us guilty but blameless through grace. We are each of us saved through shame and disgrace. Today I met a man who spoke the truth, but spoke it out just as it is in the knowledge that God's forgiveness is his. That's a powerful poem to have been written just minutes after meeting somebody. And, and she met you the next day and, and gave this to you then? She did. We went down to the, the Docklands in Liverpool and she says, 
I was listening to you speaking yesterday and I wrote this and she handed me that the bit of paper with that poem on it. And I thought of it, well, it was a lovely way of summing up my life that I probably could never have found those words to articulate it that way. And I thought it was lovely. So, Was it nice to have someone understand you? I suppose in a sense, yes, That's that's that was very, very important for me because... And I suppose in a sense, like, obviously, well, I, I was in prison for my 18th birthday, so I never really knew what love was all about. I've never, you know, I've had relationships, but it was nothing to do with love, you know. Um, and I'd been out of prison three years and I hadn't had any relationships. So in a sense, I suppose for me, in a sense, it was the first person that I'd ever loved, if you, if you put it that way. like. And obviously it does, it's very sad for me, in a sense that the way that it ended, in a sense, because it didn't end through, you know, it was just something silly, basically. When you came out of prison, also, you turned your back on paramilitaries, or was there still that little bit of involvement? No, the only involvement that I would have had with paramilitaries when I came out of prison was that I knew them because they lived in my community. But I certainly did turn my back on them and I walked away. And from I've come out of prison, I always make decisions for myself. I won't let nobody tell me what to do or what, you know, what to do. I just do my own thing. How difficult was that? Because from what I'm led to believe, it's hard just to walk away. And I'm not just talking about pers people's personal choice to do it. I mean, the course of control involved in that. And you were someone who had been involved with paramilitaries from, from a child. You, you'd went into prison. Did anyone try to stop you or? No. Um, when I made, I just made my decision to walk away and that was it. My, my life was based around Christ at that particular time when I came out and my faith was in God and I wasn't going to listen to any paramilitaries no matter who they were or what they were. And it's actually strange because see, for someone who struggles, because sometimes that's what it is, struggle to live the Christian life. The first people to point the finger at you will be the paramilitaries, in a sense that because they'll be looking for your faults, but they forget when they're pointing the finger at you that there's three fingers pointing back at themselves. So what they need to do is they should be looking after their lives and let me look after mine. Yes, I will make mistakes in my life, and I'll probably do things that I shouldn't be doing. But the one thing I know is that my faith and my trust is in God, and I will keep my, my faith and my focus on Him, because that's the only thing that I have to live for. I have nothing else to live for, only Christ. Oh, so around 2008, you were arrested over a violent robbery that had taken place in Bournemouth. And you were accused and then convicted of being involved in, in this conspiracy. Do you want to tell me a, a bit about that? Well, basically what happened was that I, I went over to visit a friend in his, his, his pub. And on the night that the robbery happened, two girls and a fella were going to a snooker club. And they asked me to go to the snooker club with them. I told them that I didn't want to go to the snooker club. I was quite happy staying in the pub where I was staying. And I didn't want to leave that. But this fella pleaded with me to go with him because I think he, he was trying to go out with one of the girls and he wanted me to keep the other one company. So I went to the snooker hall with them. While we were in the snooker hall, 
because it wasn't in the pub that I was staying in, it was in a snooker hall. Two robbers came in and robbed the place. And on the CCTV, you will see me getting on the floor and stuff like that, right? Because, but that was in the snooker hall that was robbed, right? I was a customer just like everybody else. And I, I obviously got on the floor. There's been a lot of controversy over what happened and whether I was set up or whatever. I've always maintained that I was innocent and that the two people who done the robbery had stated in their statements that they done the robbery and it was nothing to do with me or nothing to do with my friend who had owned the pub. But and I, t still to this day, I'm still trying to fight that case. I'm still trying to clear my name. And I know it's been a long, long process, but I'm still in the process of trying to clear my name. But what we need to do is we need to get new evidence so that I can get back into the Court of Appeal. I personally believe at this moment in time that there is new evidence there, but it's finding the solicitor here who will be able to get that back into court, and hopefully that will happen very soon. So that obviously was a very low point for you to go back in, in prison when... It was traumatic for me, to be, to be honest with you, because, again, it was... I probably would have got a lot more time in prison if it hadn't been for people from Northern Ireland. And when I say people, I'm talking about nationalist politicians and unionist politicians, because a lot of these people wrote letters of support for me. And it was obviously Republicans and loyalists about the work and about what I had contributed to the peace process and helping people through from from what come out of prison. And if I hadn't got those letters, I probably would have got a lot more years, believe me. So obviously I'm thankful for those who did believe me and who supported me during that time. Did you ever think that you'd see the day that nationalist politicians would be writing character references for you? Also? No, I did not. <laughs> um, very, very strange, you know, because obviously people who were once your enemy are now, some of them have become your friend, you know. And you had built up relationships with? Republicans since leaving prison you've told me quite a lot of stories and I know you you even had a relationship with Desmond Tutu and uh, do you want to tell me about that? Well I think it all uh, if I go, go back to um, City Life Church that Jackie McKee's the pastor of they have a cafe down there called the Olive Branch and the cafe is on the peace line between the Shangle and the Falls and everybody's aware that in the cafe, there's people come from West Belfast and people from Shango. So there would be ex-Republicans and ex-Loyalists would be in that cafe every day. And the wonderful thing about that is that they can sit down and have a cup of tea and a cup of coffee together and have a chat. We can talk about some of the things of the past and then about how, obviously, we see the future. So that's all the positive that has come out of obviously the work that I've done, the work that others have done. And there's always a positive attitude in the church when people from both sides come together. It's used very frequently by both sides. So that's been a great kind of meeting point for, for those relationships to It is, grow because, because it's on the peace line, mm -hmm. people feel comfortable going in there and having a coffee and having their breakfast mm -hmm. or having their dinner or whatever. And I think it's a good thing. And it, they also have a, like a, there's an all night drop in on, on a Friday night for the homeless people 
where it's opened all night where people can go down in there they can get a shower they can get their clothes changed they can have a kip and stay there all night if they, if they, if they want to they're going to get they're going to get that support to do that and yeah. today you still carry out church work and 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 all that priceless community work how is life for you now also is it one that you live with regret or is it something that you just want to focus on spreading uh, no i don't i don't I, i'm certainly not going to live with regret because I, I think i'm more positive in my thinking now and all i can really all i really want to do is that you know see see in both communities there are a lot of people and there's a lot of people hurting and there's a lot of people see if i could put it this way here like i would have loads and loads and loads of friends but sometimes you can have people all around you but you can be the most loneliest person in the world so i think it's very very important that you know i would walk into that church every day or walk in there every day and it wouldn't matter whether it was a republican or a loyalist or whoever it may be but there's people who are hurting and i think it there's a skill in noticing that and going and speaking to that person and trying to give them just that wee word of encouragement that they need because i think that's that's very very crucial and as i say and i have emphasized it because mental health is a terrible thing and as you, you mentioned that earlier on in the interview about suicides and stuff like that suicides are rampant in both communities both on the shangle and the falls and maybe some of these people if they just had someone to speak to and they mightn't be where they are today and i, I that's why i always find it very very important to try and reach out to, to whoever it is and maybe just that wee word in season might help them. And is it something you struggled with over the years, also your mental health? Was it something that Yes, I've had I've had serious mental health issues. There's many times I felt like committing suicide myself. And there's many, many times that I, I felt the most loneliest person in the world. But the strange thing for me is I always knew that Christ was there. So people say that, you know, pray. See, for me, prayer is just having a conversation with your dad. So that's what, that's what God means to me. He's like, my, he's my father. So if I'm on my own, I know I can talk to him. And that, that's very, very important to me. What would you say to people who... And like you say, we have a lot of very hurt people here. What would you say to those who find it hard to forgive for for what has happened here in the past, for those who've lost loved ones, you know, who who have been deeply affected by the troubles? Well, all, all I can say is that, see, if, if a person's hurt and a person can't find it to forgive someone or whatever, I understand that. Because I can, I can feel their pain and I can feel their hurt. For me, it's different because I've got my escape route out of all this. Because God has forgiven me much. So I've got to forgive much. So in, in that sense that if the people who are hurting and who can't seem to forgive, maybe if they could love God, then God would love them and then they would be able to forgive. Because it's about, for me, it is, I realise what Christ done for me on the cross. So therefore, I realise that I've got to forgive no matter what anybody does to me. 
So no matter how hurt I am, no matter how my feelings are, because I've lost loads of friends, I've lost loved ones during the troubles and stuff like that. But at the end of the day, if God forgives you, then you've got to forgive others. That's how I cope with it. Is there anything you would say to young people now who have lost their way, who may be tempted to join paramilitaries? Because as we know, and look, I don't have the figures for both sides, but a, a report in the last year said that 12,500 people are members of loyalist paramilitaries. That's more than during the Troubles. Is there something you would say to those young people? Well, what I would say to them is, that when, when I look back when I joined the paramilitaries, although I was a confused young man, at least I thought I had a cause. My cause was that I wanted to protect my community. Today's society, why would you why would anybody want to join the paramilitaries? Because there's nothing to protect against. So in the sense that people in our community, let's be honest about it. What they talk about is ceasefire soldiers. People want to join, but what are the what, what reason are they joining? To protect their community, but sure, the community is being destroyed by drugs. So who who's responsible for that? What I would say to young people today, rather than joining paramilitaries, what I'd say to them is: seek your own identity, find out who you are, and find out what your purpose in life is, and then you may be able to go in the right direction and then help your community rather than hinder it.